There once were two siblings, a brother named Otto and a sister named Frida, and they rarely got along. Otto was generally pretty glum and uptight, often quite worrisome. You might, you might call him a pessimist at heart. Frida was the exact opposite, always light, bubbly, gen- generous, joyful, always alive, clearly the more optimistic of the two. And those profound differences often caused conflict between these two siblings. At first, the parents were hoping that this was just a phase and that they would learn to figure it out. But the more they grew up, the more they realized these were pretty profound personality differences that if it weren't addressed at an early age could cause them great strife for the rest of their lives. So the parents solicited the services of a children's therapist and made an appointment for Otto and Frida to go see her one day. The therapist immediately took the two kids out to a playground so that she could observe their behavior. And immediately they started acting out in their differences. They took off in two very different directions. Frida made a beeline for the swings, started swinging gleefully and joyfully into the heights, pretending like she was a bird soaring in the heavens. And then she hopped off the swing and made a beeline for the slides and dove down full-heartedly, headfirst into the mulch and laughed uncontrollably. And then she hopped over to the bouncy horses. And then after that, she headed over to the tire swings. All of this in the first 45 seconds. (laughs) Then there was Otto. He decided to go around to the perimeter of the playground instead, inspecting the chain-link fence that surrounded the playground, making sure that every single post was securely fastened to the ground, checking all of the chain-link to make sure there were no breaks in the chain, making sure that all of the holes in the fence were of such regulation such that a child couldn't crawl through the opening or a critter couldn't come into it. And having sufficiently inspected the chain link, he then decided to look beyond the fence, outside the playground, across the street to watch some strangers, some pedestrians walking by, making sure that those pedestrians seemed like the right kind of people, make sure they weren't threats to the kids who were in the playground. And then after inspecting the outside and making sure the fence was okay, he decided to march along the inside perimeter of the playground like a security guard or a sentry at his post. The therapist wrote some notes down and after a long period of time decided to bring the kids back inside and began by asking the two of them a very simple question. Did you have fun? Frida began, oh yeah. The time of my life, I thought I was a bird soaring in the heavens. Then I thought I was a snake slithering in the ground. And I thought I was a bunny rabbit hopping all over the place. I eventually made a whole bunch of friends and we had a tea party over in the sandbox. It was fabulous. Well, Otto, did you have fun? Well, yeah. After I made sure the place was secure, 
after I studied the rules and made sure they were all being followed, yeah, I guess you could say it was fine. Frida interrupted. How could you say it was fine? How could you say it was fun? You didn't even see any of the playground equipment, let alone play on any of it. Oh, yeah, said her brother. You didn't even notice the list of rules that were posted on the side of the fence. And yet I think you broke every single one of them, what, heading down head first on the slide. How could you say that was fun? To which the whole thing just interrupted and the siblings were squabbling all over again. Tensions were flaring, the conflict was emerging. And finally, the therapist looked down at the file that she had on the two of them and noticed with new insight the names of these two kids and it was then that she realized there's a little bit of Otto and a little bit of Frida inside every one of us and they're always at odds you know there are a lot of people who think of the Christian life as nothing more than a stale, rigid, dogmatic set of thou shalls and thou shalt nots, of do's and do nots, laws, rules on a playground, if you will. Now those, those rules are there for a good reason. It's so that we can learn to live with harmony and peace with other people. It's so that we can know what it means to live on the straight and narrow. It's to protect us, frankly, from harming ourselves and to keep other outside forces from harming us. It's so that we can really live a safe and secure life. There's nothing wrong with those rules that govern the Christian life, but... When that becomes the exclusive motivation for us to live, then all of a sudden, we live life governed by that auto inside each one of us. And we come to realize that because we're so limited, because we're so weak and frail, and because we are so mistake-prone, there is no way any of us, without exception, can possibly live up to that high of an ideal. But we try to convince ourselves that we need to. And so we say, just like Otto, I, I Otto be better than I am. I ought to be a better Christian. I ought to live the way God wants me to live. Despite all of my mistakes, I ought to live a more righteous and pure and holy life. But you know what? I just can't. And all of a sudden, that auto mechanism starts to be governed by guilt and by shame. And what's worse Otto's first cousin comes into the picture, shoulda, and coulda, and have to. And all of a sudden, it's one grand dysfunction of guilt and shame squabbling within the inside of our souls, and we realize there's just no way we can live with this burden of expectation weighing us down. And it doesn't take too long before all of a sudden we find ourselves in a trap. 
A trap. That's the exact word that Paul used in the scripture passage this morning when he was talking to his young protege, Timothy, about what happens when we become so burdened by all of this oughta and shoulda and coulda and have to that we try to convince ourselves, just as a matter of survival, that we're not as bad as we really think we are. And it becomes a self-defense mechanism when we try to project onto others that we are better than we really are or that we are stronger than we really are or that we have more in our life than we really have or that we are a purer person than we really are. And Paul says that is no way to live. In fact, that's to live in a trap. And that's not the way God wants us to live. You want to know how God wants us to live? Not as Otto, but as Frida. Not out of guilt and shame and fear, but out of freedom. And the back half of that scripture passage that Sheila just read for you is a long list of ways that God has set us free to live into the kind of freedom that God has available for us so that instead of saying, I ought to do this or I ought to do that, we can say, I am free to. I am free to live a holy life unencumbered by the sins of my past. I am free to live a generous life unencumbered by selfishness and addiction to myself. I am free to pursue hope when all around me is despair, I am free to grab hold of that which is truly life rather than to be encumbered by the shadows of my past. That's the way God wants us to live, out of freedom, not guilt or shame or fear. As Frida, not Otto. And I can't think of a better foundation I can't think of a better motivation to talk about financial stewardship in this church than out of freedom. Because, after all, in case you haven't noticed, we're in the middle of a stewardship campaign around here. You got your cards in the mail last week. This Sunday is our Commitment Sunday. And I have to tell you, there are a lot of churches that try to motivate their congregations out of auto to try to convince them that giving a, a pledge card or making a financial commitment to the church is something to be done out of guilt or fear or shame. This is something you ought to do if you want to be a faithful Christian. This is something you ought to do if you want to keep the ministries going in this church. This is something you ought to do because God is requiring it of you. This is something you ought to do because it's obligatory, because it's part of our, our ritual as a church. Ought to do this, should have done this, have to do this. And I have to say that in this church, at least as far as I can remember, every stewardship campaign that I've seen here, it has always been motivated out of freedom, out of the gracious, generous grace of God that has been given to us for joy. Because this is something we get to do. This is something we are free to do rather than something we have to do. And in fact, if I were to boil it all down for you, what stewardship in this church means for us this year, I would give you three simple words 
to hang this whole stewardship identity on. Three simple words I want to unpack for you. One, facts. Two, freedom. Three, faith. First is the facts. I just want to tell it to you as clearly and as plainly as I can. None of the ministries or programs that we have in and through this church can possibly happen were it not for your financial generosity. None of the ways that God's love is made real either in this church or in the community or in partnership with agencies around the world could possibly happen if it weren't for the Spirit of God working through your generosity, which is a way of saying thank you. There is a lot to celebrate about the way your faithful stewardship has erupted in ministries of joy and goodness and beauty all throughout the world. You can think of your own list of ways that you've experienced that or you've been part of that in and through this church. And even if you just look at the vital signs of this congregation, just the most obvious statistics, you can see that the Spirit is really alive in this place. Worship attendance, for example over the past 15 months, has steadily been ticking upward. Look at the financial stewardship of this place. Two years ago, there were about 475 pledging households in this church. 475. Last year, we went up to 535. An increase of the number of folks who are pledging here to this church and committing their financial resources to this congregation. This year, the stewardship planning team has offered a goal for us to reach 575, which means simply that all we need is 40 of you who are regular givers but not currently pledgers to turn in a card next Sunday. And we believe that we're going to hit that 40 goal. There's been so many exciting things happening in this church, and I think it has to begin with the amazing work done downtown at the Portico campus. Just about two months ago, a vital witness in the form of a faithful congregation began worshiping in there every single Sunday night. And before too long, that renovation project that's been taking place down there will be completed, and it will be a fabulous campus with wonderful ministry tools to make God's love real to the unchurched and spiritually hungry downtown. It's been an amazing story of renovation. About a $2 million budget going into the facilities down there. And up to this point, not a single cent has been incurred in debt to make it happen. It's been amazing. Now, with most construction projects, it's taken a little longer than we thought. Surprise, surprise. And it's also cost a little more. Surprise, surprise. Some very unexpected but very necessary, critical expenses in order to make that place able to be occupied for ministry. In fact, it's a total of $189,000 that are unexpected costs that we're going to have to pay. And the finance team is studying that situation. And of course, there is that possibility that it will impact how we do ministry through our general operating fund. And there is a way in which it could impact the kinds of ministries that we do next year. But you know what? 
We're not governed by fear around here. We don't push panic buttons. We decide to live into freedom and faith and believe that just as has been the case every year for generations now, the answer will come through the faithfulness of God's people, through this stewardship campaign and through your generosity. By the way, this is probably a good place for me to say that if you'd like to know more about our financial situation and learn more about where the money all goes to make dramatic impact in the community and in the world, right outside the exit doors in the courtyard today, as Vicki said, there are members of the finance team to answer all of your questions and simply walk up and down the breezeway and see all of the beautiful ways that God's love is made real through your financial gifts. Those are just the facts. But we choose to respond to those facts not out of fear, not out of guilting or shaming people or strong-arming people to give. Our primary motivation around here is to see God set people free and to set this church free in order to minister to more people both here and around the world. And I have to say to you, that's exactly what's happening. Several weeks ago, we sent out a survey to the whole congregation asking a very simple question. How have you experienced freedom through God's love made real in this church? What difference has this church made in your life? And we asked you to simply respond by condensing those responses in the form of a word or a phrase that describes before you came to this church and how your life is different now. The responses were overwhelming. The stories were amazing. And some of you were even generous enough to let us film you as you revealed your before and after word of the way that you have experienced a freedom to really live in the form of this video that we share with you now.
That's what God's doing here. God's in the freedom business. And this church is on the front line of setting people free. That's just a portion, by the way, of the amazing number of responses we got to that question. You'll see more responses on the screen during the offertory right after this sermon. But the big question is, what are your words? What are your before and after words? What's the testimony you can give of the way that you have been set free because of God's work in this church? That is the motivation to give. To give freely. Not because you oughta, but because you're free to. Because you're free to live a holy life. You are free to make a difference. You are free to make an impact in the world. You are free to be in a relationship with God. You are free to be reconciled with people. You are free to love and free to give. And you are free to be generous. You are free. If you're a regular giver, you are free to pledge. And if you're a regular pledger, you are free to pledge more to offset the 6% or so increase in our budget for next year. You are free to make a difference in the world today. And that ought to put a smile on your face. But ultimately, that ought to encourage you to take a step of faith. That's the final of the three words. To do what you normally wouldn't think to do. To respond to God's call in a way you would normally ignore it. To do what is risky, even what is costly, and perhaps what is uncomfortable in order to be generous, in order to be loving, in order to really make a difference. And I I can't think of a better prayer to round this whole thing up than a beautiful prayer that was written by the great Henri Nouwen years ago. One of the most significant spiritual writers of our lifetime wrote this prayer as a way of envisioning what happens when the shackles fall off when that which encumbers the human life yields to the freedom that God gives to all of us, when the clenched fists of selfishness and greed give way to the generous and open hands of someone who is ready to receive from God in order to give in the name of God. I want to show you this prayer. I'll read it all the way through. And then I'm going to have us read it together in unison as a way of closing our time this morning. Dear God, I am so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and to discover that I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. And what you want to give me is love, unconditional, everlasting love. Brothers and sisters, that's our motivation. Our motivation is one of freedom, to be free to live into that which God has called for us, to be free to grasp hold, as Paul says, of that life which is truly life. And so, let's join together as a close to this word together as we pray.
Dear God, I am so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and to discover that I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. And what you want to give me is love, unconditional, everlasting love. Amen.